Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do about them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm a professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Here joining us today is Professor Bart Bonikowski, Associate Professor of Sociology and Politics at New York University. He uses computational text analysis and relational survey methods and has a, a particular focus is very widely published, in fact, on nationalism, populism, and radical right parties. I've been learning a lot from his work, both in my teaching and in some work I've been doing on populism and outsider politics, and I, I'm really pleased to uh, welcome you to the podcast, Bart. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. So I'm going to kick us off by asking some kind of broad questions about populism, which is a term that that a lot of people kind of kick around with a lot of built-in assumptions, and sometimes we don't really break down as much as we could. So I kind of want to start out by asking you to give your definition of populism, and maybe say a little bit about why you think understanding it is useful. Certainly. Yeah. So populism, as I understand it, uh, is a way of making political claims. It's a way of framing political projects that the political candidates use frequently on both the left and the right. And what it consists of is a moral binary. It's a way of vilifying some sort of an elite, framing that elite as essentially uh, fundamentally morally corrupt. And on the other hand, uh, it's, a, it's a mode of politics that uh, glorifies the people and suggests that the people should have unmediated access to political power. So basically the idea is that the elites have given up on us. They are, they are serving their own interests. In order for politics to return to the way it should be, we need to essentially kick out these corrupt elites, replace them with the true representatives of the people, and return return the power to the people. Uh, and as I mentioned, this way of doing politics exists both on the left and the right. Um, and as you can imagine, who the elites are that are vilified varies quite a bit across different ideological ideological uh, dispositions of the politicians making these claims. So on the right, it's typically government bureaucrats, uh, intellectual elites that are vilified. On the left, when populist claims are made, uh, the elites that are often vilified are big uh, business leaders, uh, CEOs of companies, the wealthy, uh, people essentially who are seen as disadvantaging everyday working people. And so the idea with, with populist claims, it's, it's a way of mobilizing support for political projects. I think it's a, it's, it's a form of politics that's been around for a long time, but it certainly has become um, more prevalent perhaps in, in recent years, or at least that's, that's the argument that we often hear in the media. And it's been especially relevant in the rise of radical right parties uh, in Europe, um, in the United States and beyond. And so it's an important ingredient in the way that these parties uh, appeal to voters. So if you think about Donald Trump, for instance, arguments about draining the swamp, about um, uh, returning power to the people and getting rid of corrupt politicians was a really important aspect of, of his claims. So not surprisingly, it attracted a lot of attention in the media uh, and among scholars as well. So I, I think the reason we need to study is that it, it's a prevalent uh, and important way of, of making political claims. So maybe two more things about that. Uh, I think one aspect of the definition I think it's important to remember is that in, in the way I use the term, and I'm not alone in this, populism is not an attribute of political actors. I think it's not really relevant to say, is this politician a populist or not a populist? I think it's, it's more reasonable to think about populism as an attribute of political claims. So that the same politician can use populist arguments in one election, but not another. So I think that's that's an important aspect of this of this definition. And we saw this with Donald Trump. In 2016, populism was a core attribute of, of Trumpist politics of the Trump's campaign. By 2020, he relied on populism much less frequently. 
So that's, that's one thing to remember. And I think the other thing to remember is that populism is not the only, or perhaps even the most important aspect of radical right politics. And this is where we get into some definitional trouble sometimes, is that, that people use populism as a shorthand for radical politics. You know, when we think about um, the coverage of the Donald Trump campaign or, or of uh, Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil, or any of the politicians in Europe, whether it's uh, in Italy or, you know, thinking of Brexit in the UK, people often say, those are populist politicians. And I think that's fine as shorthand, but it actually misses the fact that radical right politics is as much about ethno-nationalism and authoritarianism as it is about populism. And I'm happy to say more about that, but I think we need to pay attention to all three aspects of radical right politics. Yeah, great. So I kind of want to, I want to talk to you about the ideology and populism question, because it seems like there's this sort of, this is true in the American politics literature, and it's true in the comparative literature. I know you're a sociologist, so maybe you have a different take on this, but it seems like there's always a sort of disclaimer that's like, well, you know, populism can work with the left or the right. Here is why that is. And then, you know, here's what left-wing populism is. It's about economic elites. And here is what right-wing populism is. It is about cultural elites slash ethnic minorities. And it's that last bit that people are not totally clear on how to fit how to fit in. So I'm going to maybe kind of throw like two questions at you and let you decide how you want to think about them. One is, I think I was listening to a, a different interview um, that you had done. And you mentioned the this formulation, I believe it's John Judas's formulation that right-wing populism is is like a sort of three-part thing with the elites, the people, and then the ethnic minorities. And left-wing populism is sort of a two, two-part thing with just the elites and the people. And so I have this question, I guess, actually, I want to ask you first about left-wing populism, and then I want to pivot to Trump. But we don't talk as much in the U.S. about left-wing populism, I feel like. And I wonder if there's a sort of measurement problem there where it's tr- it's much trickier to pick up on any implicit ethnic um, or national or racial cues in left-wing populism because they're so they're so deeply implied in American politics in so many ways. Are they lurking there and they're just not detectable using these sort of analytical techniques or is left-wing populism truly kind of devoid of these appeals? I say this as I'm thinking about Bernie Sanders being like very racially liberal in, in his remarks, but on the other hand, you know, very, <laughs> has had a lot of trouble building a multiracial coalition. That's a really interesting question. Yeah, I, I do think that uh, it's certainly plausible that left-wing populists uh, can uh, invoke implicit, uh, you know, exclusionary, racially, ethnically exclusionary claims. It's, it's not that by definition, um, it, it's impossible for the left to engage with these uh, exclusionary, uh, exclusionary arguments. It's just that I think in practice, certainly in the U.S. context, uh, in the current European context, they seldom do so. I think for most part, left-wing populism is an economic populism. It's a populism that vilifies economic elites. And if the, if the people are glorified as typically everyday working people um, and with either the ethno-racial attributes of those people left unspoken or or in some cases there's an, uh, an attempt to to really build a multiracial multi-ethnic working class coalition um, but I think the reason why the latter is less frequent that is that for most part left-wing populism populists do not speak to issues of race ethnicity in an explicit matter is that they're primarily interested in class politics right this is this is often a way populism on the left is typically a way in which old socialist or social democratic politics have evolved over time to sort of 
talk about people, the working people in general without invoking class, but there is a kind of a, a class, implicit class uh, um, concept in, the, in this way of doing politics. So I think the bottom line is that um, that even if Bernie Sanders has trouble uh, galvanizing support among a broad swath of the of the electorate, um, uh, the idea in his claims is that his politics should speak to everyone, right? To everyone who pays taxes, everyone who works and is being essentially exploited by by the rich and by big business. So, so my sense is that this idea that on the left populism has two parts, the elites and the people, whereas on the right it has three parts, the elites, the people, and ethnic mi minor, uh, minorities uh, that are vilified actively by right-wing populists, I think that's about right. And we see the same thing in Europe. For most part, left-wing populists um, do not engage in exclusionary discourse. Um, there have been some attempts in some countries on the left to, to kind of compete for the rights electorate. So we did see in, uh, in Denmark, for instance, the Social Democrats jump on the anti-immigrant bandwagon. Um, but aside from that, it's, it's rather rare. So I think, I think either, again, it's, it's either that left and populists don't, get, don't mention race and ethnicity in any explicit way, or if they do, they try to engage as broad uh, a, a section of the electorate as possible and, and try to galvanize support across ethnic and racial groups. That's at least my sense. Okay, that's, yeah, that's interesting. I want to move into talking a little bit about Trump since apparently, you know, uh, like what, eight years on, we're still, we still can't get away from talking about Trump. But it seems like this is when a lot of people started paying attention to populism in the American politics literature. And I think, you know, your work is cool because you and Noam Gidron, who we've also had on the podcast, were writing about populism, analyzing it in context before Trump came around. So you actually had an existing framework in time. Um, but I guess the question that really has jumped out at me as I've kind of read a lot of stuff about Trump as kind of a radical right-wing populist and as everything that has, you know, transpired since 2015 has, has happened. My question is, it, what is the value added of the concept of populism to understand Trump as a, as a presidential candidate and as a president? Can we understand Trump without populism at all? That's a great question. So I think populism is quite clearly an important aspect of Trump's campaigns, and especially his 2016 campaign, in the sense that he very explicitly and repeatedly uh, vilified political elites in the United States and uh, and was making appeals to the people in a very direct way by saying that, look, if you elect me, I'll kick out these corrupt elites and uh, and you can trust me once I'm in power, I'll represent you. So you know that is clearly a, a part of his campaigning, campaign strategy and one that was quite effective. That said, I do think that actually what distinguished him much more from other American political candidates was his quite unabashed ethnic nationalism, his exclusionary nationalism, the vilification of, of immigrants, of, uh, of Muslims, of domestic minorities, and sort of a conflation of all of these minorities with crime, with terrorism. I mean, that was really the distinctive aspect of his campaign. And so populism was a part of it, but it wasn't the only ingredient and perhaps it wasn't the main ingredient. And part of the reason I say that is that the work that you're referencing that I did with Noam Gideron and, and have since updated with in other articles shows that um, actually in American politics, populism has been around for a long time. We know that, you know, certainly going back to the late 19th century uh, uh, with the agrarian populist movement in the U.S., there's a long history here. But even throughout the 20th, 20th century, political candidates, both from the Democratic and Republican parties, uh, relied on populist claims, claims quite frequently. So it's not a new phenomenon per se, but what is new is its combination and, and its fusion with 
uh, with exclusionary nationalism and authoritarianism. So if we think about the kind of, if we want to reduce Trump's campaign to a sort of a, its, its core elements, it's really saying, look, you no longer recognize your country. Your country is not what it used to be. You're no longer valued as a core member of your country. Um, and that's because the elites have abandoned you and they've essentially sold out to minorities, immigrants, and liberal intellectuals. If you want your country back, elect me. We'll kick out these, uh, these uh, corrupt elites and replace them with the representatives of the, of the people, that is with me, Donald Trump. Now, that may require some extraordinary measures, like, for instance, running roughshod over some democratic norms uh, and perhaps calling into question some existing democratic institutions. So basically, in a nutshell, that is a combination of populism, of ethno-nationalism, and of authoritarianism. And I think what Trump's innovation was in the American context is really bringing these three elements together into a coherent electoral package that really appealed to, um, to his voters, who are, for the most part, white uh, Americans. Uh, and I was, you know, people talk about white working class, white middle class. I mean, as we know, white voters voted for him, period, right? He got, he got support from all factions of white voters, except those who had the highest levels of education. And so I think it's important to keep these three elements together as, as constitutive elements of, of radical right politics. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think just one of the things that I'm hoping is, as I uh, will hand this over to Lee after one more question, we'll, we'll sort of get deeper into is the linkages here between ethno-nationalism and populism. Because I think, you know, so so this earlier paper really emphasizes, and this is something that I've um, I've cited in, in some forthcoming work, this idea of being distant, like the positionality of the politician really matters, in this case, presidential candidate, and that being distant from from the center of power actually does influence the use of populist claims. And so one of the things that's really fascinating there is like the same candidate when they're running as an outsider, like Eisenhower is one of the examples you have in the paper. When he's running as an outsider, he uses these kind of populist claims. When he's running as an incumbent, not so much. The same thing with, I think, with Bill Clinton um, in 92 and 96. And so that that's really intuitive. That makes a lot of sense. But it doesn't totally explain some of the ethno-nationalist stuff, or like we don't have an obvious kind of roadmap of how it maps onto that. But the other question that I have is kind of about the anti-system element and the way in which populism kind of legitimates the claims that call into question basic democratic institutions. And because we're seeing these things converge with Trump right now as a candidate who has been close to power, now wields little formal power, but a lot of informal power in the Republican Party, yet is also, I think, kind of drawing on these claims, and his supporters are drawing on these sort of anti-system claims in the context of his recent indictment. So we're recording this on, on April 10th. Trump has just been been indicted, and it's like this new opportunity for victimhood. So what what's your sense of how populist claims will be part of the Trump story moving forward is the, the question I'm pulling out of that mess. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I think it's very much true that populist claims tend to be the claims of challengers, of people coming in from the outside. And that makes sense because they are uh, alleging that the, that the current elites who are currently in power are corrupt. Uh, so it's a way for them to make essentially entree into the political system and distinguish themselves from other mainstream candidates. Um, and it becomes much harder to make those kinds of claims once you've been in office yourself. And so we've seen in past research 
that those who are running for the first time, who had never occupied political office, are the most likely to rely on populist claims. By the time they're running for re-election, they tend to tone down their populism because it's just not as credible. So we, we saw that in, with Trump in 2016 versus 2020. On the other hand, what is quite a persistent pattern among um, uh, radical right candidates is, is the reliance on authoritarian claims, on claims that violate basic norms of democracy. And so I, you know, my guess is that we're going to see a lot of uh, discourse about a stolen election, about uh, corrupt federal investigations, uh, about the system being stacked against Trump and his supporters. Uh, and that sense of grievance combined with, I think, continued ethno-nationalism and uh, racial ethnic exclusion will be a really core ingredient, ingredient of his appeal uh, in the upcoming election. You know, and, and of course, he also is in this position where now that he's not running as an incumbent, he can make some populist claims uh, targeting uh, the current administration, of course. Uh, so I imagine that that'll come back into the picture uh, a little bit more than it was in 2020. And so I think what you often see in these kinds of campaigns is a politics of grievance, a politics of resentment, right? So you say to your supporters, look, you're, you're, this is not a country that you recognize. Again, your place in this country has been, uh, has been called into question and elect me, I will fix it, right? So this is, and, but, but that may require, again, extraordinary measures that, that fly in the face of democratic norms. And I think that that's something we see time and time again from radical right politicians, and, and we're gonna see it from, from Trump as well. Awesome, thank you. I'm gonna hand it over to Lee now. So I, I want to pick up on the questions about nationalism, which is the other part of this equation. Now, I, I really enjoyed reading your uh, re recent AJS, American Journal of Sociology, article on the partisan sorting of America, how nationalist cleavages shaped the 2016 U.S. presidential election with Yuval Feinstein and Sean Bach. And what's really useful, I think, Two things. One is this typology that you give us about different types of nationalism. I think that we always we tend to to think about nationalism as one thing, but you break it out into four categories, creedal, disengaged, restrictive, and ardent. And I want you to explain those categories. And the other thing is that you have a really interesting story about how the sorting happened in response to 9-11 and the way in which Bush and the Republicans responded to that. So I'd love it if you could kind of tell us a little bit about those four types of nationalism and how and how they overlap and how they oppose each other and the, the story that you see from 1996 to 2016 as you've traced the rise and fall of these different ways of thinking about nationalism. Sure. So this this gets at the second component of radical right politics. So Julia was asking a lot about populism, um, and this really gets at, at, at this notion that radical right politicians candidates exploit tensions in the in the electorate around the nation's meaning. And you know, this other people have written a lot about the importance of anti-immigrant uh, politics on uh, on the radical right, uh, the publication of various minorities, and this really confronts that topic. I mean, the idea here is that we should really be thinking about nationalism not as just an ideology or, or a particular political project, but as a set of beliefs, uh, as a way through which people understand what their nation means. Um, and I had been studying nationalism before I got into research on radical right politics, so it's kind of a natural thing to bring into this topic as I, as I started uh, working more on populism uh, uh, and on, on Trumpism, et cetera. 
And so the idea here is that in all countries, there is internal heterogeneity with respect to what the nation means to people. That is, if we look at survey data from the United States, but from any other uh, contemporary democracy as well, we will notice that people disagree about the, what the nation means and that those disagreements are often latent. They're sort of in the population, but people are not acting upon them primarily when they're voting. But once in a while, they become much more manifest and much more important during elections. Um, and so the four types of nationalism that you mentioned um, are really a way of trying to empirically map this set of differences in, in understandings of a nation and in a population. And I tend to think of these really as kind of cultural cleavages. The bottom line is that um, today, Americans who identify with the Democratic Party versus those who identify with the Republican Party do not agree about what America actually means, right? That's a really, that's a really fascinating and important development. Um, that most Republicans and most Democrats fundamentally disagree about America's meaning, which also means that they disagree about its, uh, you know, the path that the country ought to take. But as the paper that that you're alluding to shows that that wasn't always the case. If we look back to just the mid 1990s, there was plenty of disagreement about America's meaning, but it wasn't mapped onto these two parties in such a clear way. That is, there was much; these cleavages were much more cross-cutting. Um, there was a lot of disagreement within the Democratic Party about America's meaning. There was a lot of disagreement within the Republican Party about America's meaning, and some points of potential agreement between the parties. And what we saw over the, the subsequent um, 20 years is the sorting of these nationalist beliefs uh, among re Republican Democrat, uh, Democratic supporters, so that we're, we're at a stage now, uh, we're at a place now where, where Democrats and Republicans fundamentally disagree about America's meaning, and there's very little in common for them to, to discuss. Now, I can tell you a little more about what I mean by these these distinct models of, of the nation, distinct understandings of a nation. I Please think. do, because I, I think it's it's quite quite helpful to really break it down. I mean, when, when I think of creedal politics, I think of like Samuel Huntington and a story about uh, American values that is really distinct from from any, any type of national identity. Is that is that kind of what you mean by creedal politics? To some degree, I think the idea is that we all carry in, in our minds some understanding of what our country means to us, right? And when we think about what aspects of the country are implicated in these kinds of, these kind of cultural schemas or cognitive models, well, it's for one thing, um, who gets to belong to the country who doesn't, right? What are the kind of the symbolic boundaries of the nation? Can anybody, regardless of race, creed, religion, be a legitimate American or not? People disagree about this. Similarly, people disagree about whether the state is something to be proud of, to celebrate, or with something to be feared uh, and to be highly skeptical of, right? So these notions of national pride and different aspects of the nation, the state, the economy, uh, national heritage, there's disagreement about that as well. And finally, people disagree about the nation's place in the world, right? Uh, think about, for instance, should uh, America be the policeman of the world? Uh, or rather a sort of force for humanitarian good. There's disagreement about America's place in the world. Some people believe that America is the greatest country um, uh, and every other country should be more like America. Others disagree with that. So these are different components that cohere into these kind of overall understandings of the nation. People hold these attitudes together uh, in specific configurations. And what, we've, what I've tried to do in past work is to map these configurations using survey data. And so the four types of nationalism that you mentioned are a result of that. So I call them creedal or liberal, um, restrictive, disengaged, and ardent. Uh, and each one of these types of nationalism com combines these different aspects of, of national identity in unique ways. 
Uh, and does so so that, so that these four types are not just a continuum from least nationalist to most nationalist. It's not a monotonic kind of variable. Rather, there are really four distinct configurations that cut across one another in interesting ways. So, you know, I could get into this much more detail, but just to give you a glimpse of this, um, the people who I consider to be creedal or liberal nationalists tend to uh, have quite a, an, an open-minded, inclusive sense of who gets to belong to, to the American nation. They tend to be quite proud of their nation and have moderate, moderate levels of chauvinism, let's say, in terms of how they think, uh, you know, the degree to which they think that America is the greatest country on earth. People who, you know, survey respondents who um, I call restrictive nationalists uh, are quite different in the sense that they have exclusionary notions of, of national membership, particularly along the lines of ethnicity and religion. Um, they have really low levels of pride in the nation and moderate levels of chauvinism. If we think about the ardent nationalists, they're sort of rah-rah-rah jingoistic American nationalists across the board. Um, exclusionary, high pride, high chauvinism. And finally, the disengaged are sort of low in all these variables. So they tend to be very inclusive in terms of who gets to belong, have low levels of pride and low, low levels of chauvinism. And so basically what you see from the description is that, that these are kind of combinatorial configurations of, of beliefs. So it's not just about from most to least inclusive, but it's also about high versus low pride, high versus low chauvinism. And if we map these configurations in survey data, uh, it turns out that they're uh, highly associated, robustly associated with a whole slew of political beliefs. Um, they're associated with sort of demographic attributes of the respondents. Um, and in the, in the 2016 election, they were uh, highly correlated with vote, vote choice, not just Trump versus Clinton in the general election, but also in terms of people's primary election voting choices. Uh, and, and importantly, as you pointed out, these four types of nationalism have gotten very much sorted by party uh, leading to, to vast disagreements across the two parties in terms of what America is. So uh, tell us a little bit more about the, the politicians who you think are are most typical of each of these categories and you know, perhaps or their supporters, if you know, having looked at primary uh, voting patterns. Sure. So what we saw in that uh, in that AJS paper that you referenced is that voters who had low levels of national pride, both in the disengaged nationalist camp and in the restrictive nationalist camp, uh, tended to vote for, uh, for candidates who made populist appeals. So the disengaged, those who were inclusive, but had low levels of pride and low levels of chauvinism, were much more likely to support Bernie Sanders over other candidates in the Democratic primary. On the other hand, the restrictive nationalists who were, had exclusionary conceptions of national identity and national belonging, uh, but also low levels of pride and nation uh, and, and moderate levels of chauvinism were much more likely to support Donald Trump in the primary and in the general election. On the other hand, those who I described as creedal or, or liberal nationalists were much more supportive of Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary as well as in the general election, whereas those who were the most sort of uh, ardent nationalists, they were exclusionary, high pride, high chauvinism, they went for, for Trump uh, in, the, in the general election. So uh, what we saw is basically uh, interesting variation both in the primary and the general that suggested that these nationalist types were really, really, nationalism types were really important predictors of, of vote choice. And I, I want to point out that this really also gets us into cross-national comparative analysis. So the same four types of nationalism I found repeatedly in survey data from uh, a wide range of contemporary democracies. And we've also done analyses that show that, uh, that they're associated with radical right support and populist left support in similar ways to what I just described in the US um, across a wide range of European countries, for instance. 
So I, my overall argument is really, you know, the, the, the work I've been doing is really trying to understand the rise of radical right politics and the, their mainstreaming um, across a very wide range of country cases. And it seems to me that these nationalist cleavages are a really important part of the explanation. That is, they're being mobilized by radical right actors across a wide range of countries, and they're, and these nationalist cleavages are really important predictors of, of voting preferences as a result. Now that we're moving beyond our shores, it seems like there's considerable variation uh, across OECD countries and in the extent to which uh, these uh, populist nationalist parties are having success. What is unique about the U.S.? Where does the U.S. stand in terms of the success of populist nationalist parties? And what explains the variation? So my broader project has been to try to understand the mainstreaming of these parties across a wide range of cases. And I think that's a really difficult thing to do because obviously these countries vary tremendously in terms of, for instance, the kind of grievances that voters have when they go to the, to the voting booth, uh, but also in terms of political institutions. And so uh, as far as the outcomes go, we now know that radical right parties are commonplace across a very large number of countries. But of course, the degree to which they are, there's a representation in parliament or the degree to which they are um, uh, in power varies a lot. Um, so I think the way I would put it is that the kind of starting conditions that lead to radical right support are quite varied across cases, right? There is no one single explanation. Uh, whether it's economic or cultural, um, I think what we need are multi-causal explanations that, that show that actually, you know, in some cases, people are driven by economic grievance. In other cases, they're driven by cultural backlash. In other cases, they're driven by um, security fears or fears of, of changing mainstream culture. I mean, there, there's a wide range of causes that I think vary quite a bit, not just within countries, but really between countries. The other thing that's, that varies a lot are, of course, political institutions, which is why in some countries, radical right parties, you know, have 5% of, say, elected seats in parliament, whereas in other countries, like in the US, they've essentially radical right politicians have captured one of the two mainstream parties um, and, and resulted in the election of, 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 a, of a radical right politician to the presidency. So I think in terms of the, the actual specific outcomes, political institutions are really important. Where I think the commonality across all these countries uh, lies is, that, is in the mechanisms that connect the grievances to the presence of radical right politics in the mainstream. And so if we think about the fact that, you know, if, if one wants to understand what happened in the U.S. with Trumpism, it's really important, of course, to think about the Obama presidency and the backlash against it, to think about the history of, of, of race politics in the United States, right? If we think about Eastern Europe, for instance, Poland, it's, of course, also really important to think about the fact that there was this incident uh, uh, that a plane w uh, went down uh, with a with large number of government officials on it that was then used, that this event was then used for all kinds of conspiratorial arguments by politicians on the radical right. Those are both the Obama presidency and the small plane crash are very particular events, right? They're not going to get us to an overall comparative theory of radical right politics. But what is common across these very different cases is are the mechanisms of, of political mobilization. So you can have people aggrieved for all kinds of reasons, um, but what a opportunistic political candidates seem to be doing in all of these countries is to take these various grievances, bundle them into a sense of overall status threat, basically telling members of the ethno-racial majorities in the country, look, people like you are, are losing. The country is leaving you behind. And the next 
uh, sort of rhetorical move is blame minorities and blame the current political elites, right? So that's, that all of a sudden attributes blame and generates a sense of grievance against, uh, against immigrants, against minorities, and against uh, current political elites. Uh, and the result of that is, in, 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 the, in the model that I'm proposing, is that these pre-existing nationalist cleavages that we've been talking about become all of a sudden mobilized, right? Uh, and they lead to greater support for radical right politicians. So you can now imagine this, the sense in which, you know, different countries have different starting positions, different countries have different uh, sets of relevant grievances, um, but the politicians in all these countries use very similar rhetorical strategies, um, very similar political, uh, political mobilization strategies to gain support. And that is about creating a sense of status threat among minorities, pointing a finger, uh, sorry, uh, creating a status threat among majorities, pointing a finger toward minorities and, and the elites, uh, and as a result, gaining increased power. Um, so I think to the degree that the U.S. is different, which was your question initially, um, it's different in the sense of, you know, it's obviously has very particular sets of grievances that people are, are coalescing around. And it also has very different political institutions than many of the other countries uh, in the OECD. But the mechanisms through which uh, radical right politics mobilizes support are very similar to what we see elsewhere. So I just want to be a little bit more specific in that. I mean, the U.S. has obviously a, a long history of struggling with race and inclusion, going back to slavery and various waves of anti-immigration uh, sentiment. But I'd say we're unique in having the strongest two-party system. Uh, and there are some other countries that use first-past-the-post systems, the U.K., Canada. I would say that Canada has dealt with the populist wave much more uh, successfully than the UK. So how does that compare to other countries, both with the US history of slavery, which is a which is somewhat unique, and the winner-take-all majoritarian two-party system? Right, those seem like uniquely exacerbating elements in this moment in which urban-rural divides over populism have sort of generally crested uh, across democracies in this era of globalization and more secularization of society broadly. So I think in some ways we can think of these as differences in kind of the grievances, the inputs into the model and the, and the, what happens in terms of political outcomes is, is the result. And so I would say, yes, of course, the, the U.S. is unique in both respects that you mentioned. Uh, but we know that European countries have a pretty long history of all kinds of other ethno-nationalist movements uh, and, uh, and ethno-nationalist uh, um, uh, historical moments, uh, often long moments, history of anti-Semitism, um, history of, of, um, of exclusion of immigrants and refugees, etc. Um, and so I think in terms of thinking about what is the what are the kinds of grievances that can be mobilized by radical right politicians in the European versus European countries versus the US, you know, they're, 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 they're very specific, but on the other hand, all of them, whether it's uh, the history of, of racial oppression in the US or um, the history of anti-immigrant uh, politics in Europe can be filtered to the same set of kind of same set of status mechanisms that I mentioned. Um, and so in Europe, obviously this is typically about uh, more recent waves of immigrants from North Africa and the Middle East, uh, of Muslim immigrants, That that is the, target in Western Europe in terms of minorities uh, to be feared and resented. In the Eastern Europe, it's quite distinct. There, migration until recently has been quite, uh, you know, low in terms of its levels. Um, and so, but that doesn't prevent politicians from saying, look, 
um, you should be terrified of, of Jews uh, and Muslims, even in places like Poland, where there are essentially no Jews nor Muslims, right? So uh, the, the kind of vilification of the minorities there is really kind of a vilification of phantom minorities that draws on a long history of anti-Semitism and exclusion from history, uh, as well as um, kind of points to potential threats that could be looming in the future. We're, you know, coming back to the U.S., the vilification is typically that of immigrants, but also um, of, of domestic um, Muslim populations. And as we know, in Trump's discourse, there was kind of an implicit uh, racism, although he was quite careful about this. And there was research that shows that he tended not to engage in explicit racism in terms of, I'm specifically speaking about uh, African-Americans here, he tended to vilify uh, uh, Latinos, he tended to vilify immigrants and Muslims, but was, in terms of African-Americans, was much more crafty, right? This was typically much more coded, implicit, patronizing language, having, you know, referencing um, improving inner cities and making other kinds of uh, coded racial uh, claims. And so, again, the, the kinds of specific grievances that are mobilized by these politicians vary a lot across countries. Um, but in all cases, we've got the same kinds of politics of status, uh, threat, and outgroup resentment that then bring these radical right parties and politicians onto the political scene. Now, what happens after that in terms of what is the actual impact of these radical right politicians within these countries, that's where we get to other differences that you pointed to. So um, this is where having uh, a two-party first-past-the-post system like the U.S. results in a very different outcome than in countries where, um, you know, where radical right politics ends up being uh, resulting in like a 15 percent uh, of seats in the parliament that then, you know, where then these politicians have to come into coalitions with other governing parties. So in the U.S. case, basically, radical right politics has taken over one of the two parties, has elected a president um, who yields tremendous power over the Republican Party. And in some ways, the consequences of that are much more dire than in Western European countries where these parties are in a minority, again, where they enter into coalition politics uh, and have to, as a result, interact with other parties and often moderate while in power, or maybe never even enter power or get, gain access to power, but are simply kind of a mainstay of, of the new political reality. So I think we need to be mindful of, again, differences uh, in the historical conditions within each country, differences in terms of the grievances that are relevant within each country, differences in terms of the political outcomes that are filtered through quite distinct institutional systems. But yet, in all these countries, there is a presence of radical right politics in one form or another, at least in the vast majority of countries we're talking about. Um, and in all these countries, the radical right uses very similar discursive modes, very similar political arguments, and, and very similar mechanisms of political mobilization. Um, and I think that that's where we can come up with a theory that works across otherwise completely different countries. Well, this has been a really fascinating and rich discussion. And um, I, I want to thank you, Bart, for, for joining us. And I want to kind of summarize a couple of things I think really jumped out at me about this. So we've talked about both populism and nationalism. And I think in both cases, we've gotten a little bit different perspective from a sociological lens about mobilization and context. So both disciplines think a lot about, I think it's fair to say, about about political institutions. Maybe political scientists are a little more preoccupied with that. We also think about mobilization, but I think this is really valuable the way you're talking about kind of the different the different conditions that can bring about an electorate that is kind of receptive to those modes of mobilization and the kind of interaction between 
um, between those seeking office and the mass public and kind of using these different mobilization strategies. The other thing that kind of jumps out at me is we've really, I think, touched on both these mobilization techniques by elites, but also the kind of worldviews held at the mass level. And it seems to me like one of the kind of ironic takeaways that I've uh, I've kind of glommed onto here is that uh, populism is, is, you know, is an elite strategy um, rather than maybe a, a mass, um, a, a worldview in the mass electorate. And the, the final thing I think that, that we're really getting at here that informs the larger discussion that um, a lot of people are having right now is the conversation about democratic backsliding and the kind of deep concern that sort of authoritarian elements can easily be kind of snuck into democratic politics and that some of these distinctions may not be as as clear and as kind of evident to pick up on as we may have we may have previously believed i think that kind of that I don't want to use the word liminal because I feel like that really marks me as an out of touch academic, but <laughs> this you know this sort of in between of populism and, and nationalism, the way that they show the closeness of democratic and authoritarian appeals is a really you know really an important thing to think about as scholars and journalists and everyday folks have these conversations about the preservation of democracy. So that's kind of my. I don't know, my, my final attempt to summarize this wide-ranging conversation, and um, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.